Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be doing an episode in our Presidential Portrait Series, talking about one of the most consequential presidents of recent time, um, perhaps unexpectedly consequential, given the cataclysmic events that happened during his presidency. We're gonna be talking about the presidency of George W. Bush. And to do that today, I'm gonna to be in conversation with an old friend of Ashbrook, uh, a regular and frequent uh, guest on our podcast, Dr. Stephen Knott. Steve is professor of national security affairs at the US Naval War College and the Thomas and Mabel Guy Professor of American History and Government here at Ashland University. Uh, teaches regularly for Ashbrook in our Teaching American History seminars and particularly in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Prior to his position at the US Naval War College, Steve co-chaired the Presidential Oral History program at the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. He earned his PhD from Boston College in Political Science and his BA from Assumption College. He is, as I've said before, a New England man through and through. <laughs> He's also, of course, an expert in the American presidency. He recently participated in the C-SPAN Presidential Leadership Survey and is the author of a number of books on American foreign policy and the American presidency. Terrific books, uh, a deep scholar and thinker on the vice presidency, the presidency, and more broadly, executive power and the US Constitution, and the important questions that have animated the study and the use of executive power since the American founding. Now, particular interest to this conversation today, he is the author of a very well-known book called Rush to Judgment, George W. Bush, The War on Terror, and His Critics. Steve Knott, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's always good to reconnect with my friends out in Ohio. <laughs> well, George W. Bush, um, we've gotten now we've uh, got a little bit of, I think, time has given us some perspective. In fact, one of the arguments you make in your book on George W. Bush is there has been a rush to judgment to make uh, critical appraisals of Bush before time has let things settle some give us some insight, the, 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 the benefit of hindsight and the historian's perspective on the significance of the presidency of George W. Bush. So let's, let's start at the beginning, if you, if you don't mind, of George W. Bush's life, his early life, his childhood and his business life, in particular, his relations with his very, very famous father, George H.W. Bush. Uh, great, great question to kick things off, Jeff. Um, uh, George W. Bush was the eldest son of uh, George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush. Uh, and I think it's safe to say that the eldest son was very much uh, or grew up in the shadow of his famous and very accomplished father. Uh, and uh, if you were to talk to George W. Bush, he would say that there was at times tensions in that relationship. Um, he would probably these days put most of the blame for that on himself, 
Um, but it was, uh, you know, he was following in a sense, a very tough act in terms of such an accomplished father figure. And as we all know, George W. Bush at times did not handle that particularly well. Uh, he is, has admitted that he abused alcohol, uh, no longer does, kicked that habit a long time ago. So there were tensions in that relationship. There also seems to have been some, and not to get too psychoanalytical here, uh, but you know his younger brother, Jeb Bush, uh, some have argued seemed to have been something of a favorite of the parents and a lot of the sort of political expectations of the family were put on Jeb as opposed to George. Uh, so there's a kind of an interesting psychology there within that family. Uh, I should just point out one other thing about George W. Bush's sort of broader upbringing and young adulthood. He did sort of set himself apart uh, from his parents to the extent that this is not a guy who seemed to particularly enjoy vacationing up in Kennebunkport, Maine, but rather really preferred the sort of almost cowboy life in Crawford, Texas. And he did seem as a younger adult to try to strive for a kind of separate identity from his New England born and bred parents. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because when we think of the Bush family and Bush senior, of course, we think of uh, the Northeast and almost what some people would have called the sort of East Coast Republican establishment. Yes. Uh, but George W. Bush being born and, and raised certainly in Texas has a different flavor in yes. his upbringing. Yes, uh, excellent point, Jeff. And, and it's going to be a, a real asset for George W. Bush in terms of uh, becoming a power in Texas politics and ultimately in the national scene in the Republican Party. Um, he's going to run for Congress unsuccessfully once in Texas, but when he emerges as the governor of Texas, defeating a very popular, prominent Democratic governor, Ann Richards, um, he, George W., is much more attuned with the evangelical movement that's becoming a real power not only in the Texas Republican Party, but nationwide. So he takes, I would say, a more conservative stance on a number of the social issues, particularly issues like abortion, where at times George H.W. Bush seemed to indicate, um, depending on your point of view, a kind of wobbliness on that issue, uh, a willingness to compromise on that issue. Uh, you don't see that with George W. Bush. Talk about then, talk about George W. Bush's rise in Texas politics. Sure. How, how does he, he becomes the governor of Texas, of course, uh, I think in 1995. That's right. But, but um, talk about his rise up to the governorship. Yeah, I would say one of the things that sort of puts him on the map uh, in Texas is he becomes part owner of the Texas Rangers baseball team. Uh, that may sound uh, somewhat, um, you know, how, how can that possibly relate uh, to, to gaining political power? But as we all know, in the United States, professional sports, any kind of sports, uh, generates incredible public interest. And Bush was very much in some ways the public face of the Texas Rangers for a while. So I think in terms of name recognition, his ownership of a professional baseball team, and despite the tensions and the stresses that I mentioned earlier, the fact that he is the eldest son of, uh, of, of a sitting president from 1989 to 93, 
you know, automatically makes him a figure or a force to be reckoned with in Texas politics. How does he defeat Ann Richards, who very famously uh, gave a speech criticizing his father, if, I, if yeah. I'm remembering correctly, for being born with a silver spoon in his mouth? Uh, that's right. And, and that, of course, uh, <laughs> I mean, I got to say, at the time, I was somewhat offended by that speech, but it was in some ways a... Um, a uh, very effective uh, polemical uh, piece of rhetoric that, that really uh, reinforced this notion of the Bush family and George H.W. Bush being the child of New England uh, Yankee patricians. Um, well, he, ran, he defeated Ann Richards, I think in part uh, on the basis of what I mentioned earlier, he had strong, uh, he worked on his relationship with this growing some would say Christian fundamentalists, I won't use that term, but I will use the term evangelical movement in Texas by appealing to um, traditional issues, traditional morality, defense of the nuclear family, uh, anti-abortion. Uh, I don't think at this point gay rights is anywhere on the radar yet, uh, but it was, it was a campaign of uh, uh, focusing on cultural issues. And uh, critics would say perhaps hot button cultural issues. Uh, as a governor, when he is elected, and you say it's not a slam dunk by any means for him to defeat uh, such a well-known and, and powerful incumbent, as a governor, what marks his tenure? Yeah, I'd say two things for me, Jeff, stand out, and you'll see these sort of carried up, maybe three things, carried over into his presidency. Uh, the first is he, he focuses on the issue of education. Uh, he wants to be seen as an education governor just as much as later he'll want to be seen as an education president. He's very much caught up with, which was kind of all the rage in the 1990s of the notion of sort of across the board standardized testing, uh, which would become part of this no child left behind presidential initiative. But he implements a program of that sort in Texas, uh, he's very proud of, of his accomplishments there in terms of standardized testing and also some increases in state funding uh, for, for local education. So education is one. The second I would say in terms of his governorship is, and this too will carry over into his presidency, he is um, maybe pro-immigration is too strong, but he's not, He's not somebody talking about building walls. He's not somebody who sees immigration as a threat either to Texas or later to the entire United States. He works on uh, building bridges to the Hispanic community, the Mexican American community in Texas. And he takes, uh, I would say a somewhat moderate stance on immigration issues. The third item that is worthy of mention in terms of his governorship, is he has a very strong, good relationship with the Democratic Party in Texas in the state legislature. Now, I will acknowledge that Texas Democrats aren't exactly of the liberal variety that you find in my state like Massachusetts, but nonetheless, there were some partisan divisions and George W. Bush was able to sort of bridge those partisan divisions and he will use that as a selling point in his campaign for president in 2000, that he is somebody who can work with the opposition party 
in a civil manner. Well, I was wondering then about in his first term and then in Texas, working on those three issues, as you said, in his his successful reelection uh, as governor of Texas. How important is that in helping to shape his candidacy for the presidency? Yeah, no, no question. And so um, uh, being governor of one of the largest and most powerful states uh, in terms of just economic output and um, energy production, et cetera, et cetera, elevates Bush into the upper tier of Republican governors and Republican political figures in the late 1990s. And so this image of Bush as somebody who can work with the opposition, somebody who tries to get things done, something of a pragmatist, uh, I think was a source of his appeal as the 2000 election approaches. And let me also add something. The governorship in Texas, at least at this time, um, was, um, I don't want to say weak, but in comparison to some other governors, the way the Texas Constitution is, is uh, 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 in place, uh, for lack of a better term, um, is, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a figurehead office, but it doesn't have the same sort of clout, uh, the same sort of uh, sway that governorships and other states hold. So, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is to some extent, Bush, um, benefited from a position that allowed him to play up this healer, this, this civil, almost figurehead figure uh, in Texas politics. And that just sort of stood him well in his quest to become president in 2000, where we're just on the heels of a very divisive, hyperpartisan impeachment. That's right. That's the impeachment of President Clinton in 1998, right? Right. So we have this figure, George Bush, and yeah, it, it is a he begins to obviously have an, these national political aspirations, thinking about running for president. He defined his own political philosophy as something he called compassionate conservatism. Yes. Is that something that he had already had that moniker as governor of Texas? Or is that something that he sort of creates for the purposes of the presidential campaign? I think he already, at least in the back of his mind, Jeff, had this sense that he was somehow different, uh, perhaps from uh, the more conservative wing of the Republican Party, particularly, again, on issues of immigration and also just in sort of his dealings with the large Hispanic American community in Texas. Uh, additionally, I would add to that, the fact that George W. Bush was a born-again Christian who had kicked alcohol, um, he did seem to have an almost instinctive um, empathy uh, for folks who are perhaps down on their luck. And that, I think, translates into this co compassionate conservatism. Now, he's not necessarily a believer that the state that the government uh, needs to be in the forefront of these compassionate endeavors. But he does, I think, in Texas, begin to think of using these large charitable, particularly religious-based charitable networks to assist the poor, to assist those suffering from drug abuse, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the moniker compassionate conservatism, I believe, comes later. 
uh, but the actions, the, the program, the practices, I think are very much a part of Bush's governorship and something that he wants to bring into the presidency with it. Well, he clearly, once he starts running for president and launches his campaign, it's not as though he um, simply cruises to the nomination. Right. He has a, a very significant primary battle, in particular with John McCain. Tell us a little bit about the McCain-Bush primary and the accus accusations of a smear campaign. Yeah. I mean, primaries are often heated, but this in particular took a kind of nasty turn. It did take a very nasty turn, Jeff. And uh, what happened was that John McCain pulled off, I, I won't necessarily call it an upset, but it was a pretty serious defeat or setback for George W. Bush. McCain carries the New Hampshire primary in 2000, and uh, fairly comfortably. By the way, the Bushes historically have just done terribly in New Hampshire, both the father and the two sons, Jeb and George. Nonetheless, uh, John McCain emerges from the New Hampshire primary as the front runner. And the battleground that's gonna sort of set this or settle this question of who's gonna be the nominee turns out to be the state of South Carolina. And in South Carolina, as you mentioned, Jeff, it takes a, the campaign takes a particularly ugly turn in that there are these so-called push polls where folks are getting phone calls from alleged pollsters and they're asking questions like, would you be less willing to vote for John McCain if you knew he had an illegitimate black child, which, which was a myth. Uh, the McCains had adopted a child from Bangladesh, uh, but these calls uh, were implying that the Senator had this uh, love child. Um, there's no evidence to show a direct link to the George W. Bush campaign. Uh, but it has all the earmarks of the kind of sort of Lee Atwater politics, which is a very sort of slash and burn style politics. Uh, and I think John McCain never entirely uh, forgave George W. Bush for, um, you know, decisively denouncing this kind of tactic. How much it actually contributed to Bush's victory in South Carolina, you can still get people on both sides of that question. Nonetheless, Bush does defeat McCain in South Carolina, and the whole tenor of the primary campaign changes after that. And one last thing, Jeff, John McCain had quite a temper. We all know that he would be the first to have admitted it. Um, he kind of lost his temper in and around this whole issue, perhaps understandably, his, his family and his integrity was under attack. Uh, but, it, but it worked in the sense that it got under McCain's skin. Mm. Once Bush is able to secure the Republican nomination, is he able to unify the Republican Party in 2000? Of course, he's then going to take on Bill Clinton's vice president, Al Gore. Yeah, I think he is able, uh, Jeff, to, to unify the party. McCain comes on board. Uh, I don't know how enthusiastically he came on board, but he does come on board, at least in terms of issuing the right kinds of statements talking about party unity and the importance of winning the presidency in 2000. Um, of course, Al Gore, as you mentioned, is the sitting vice president. Um, Gore has uh, run for president himself in the past. So it was a very, as we all know, a very tightly contested election. There were a series of presidential debates between George W. Bush 
and Al Gore. Uh, perhaps if you read transcripts, you might give the edge to Al Gore. But folks who watched it in many instances were sort of put off by what they thought was a kind of uh, condescending, perhaps, demeanor on the part of Senator Gore. Uh, at one point, uh, sort of walking behind George W. Bush, kind of trying to get almost in his face and just, you know, little visual stuff like that, that fair or not, uh, can influence the result of who wins a debate. And I think Gore's theatrics backfired. Bush emerged from that debate, um, if not seen as, you know, a whiz at policy matters, perhaps, perhaps a nicer guy than Al Gore. And that seems to count for a lot sometimes in American politics. Right. So, so he wins, as you say, uh, on this compassionate conservative uh, philosophy and mantra uh, being in, in some ways more likable, but it's an exceptionally narrow win, as we all know, in some ways yeah. decided by the state of Florida and all the election controversies and the Supreme Court case and, and all that went into that. It's an exceptionally close victory. It seems like at the beginning of his presidency in 2001, Bush wants to focus on issues like education. You mentioned that already. Uh, that he wants to deal with, that he dealt with in Texas as a way of kind of unifying the country uh, with a lot of common ground and finding that kind of common ground on domestic issues. Uh, that worked from you know January through September, right? And he seems to be a very much a domestic policy president. Absolutely, Jeff. Um, you're right. His major initiatives in those eight to nine months prior to 9-11 uh, our education, as you mentioned, uh, an issue that had a bipartisan coalition pushing for change. I mean, Bush is going to work very closely with Senator Edward Kennedy on the whole No Child Left Behind initiative. Uh, but there were other domestic issues as well, one of which was stem cell research. And uh, we've all perhaps forgotten just how a big an issue that was because it occurs just prior to 9-11 and in our historical memory, it gets 9-11 swamps, everything. But for months, this was an issue that sort of dominated Congress, dominated media discussion. The question of whether to use stem cells uh, from aborted uh, fetuses uh, for medical research and the moral questions surrounding that. Uh, George W. Bush, as I mentioned earlier, had always taken a pretty hard line, a consistent hard line in terms of his anti-abortion stance. Uh, in the end, one of the few nationally televised speeches that Bush gives prior to 9-11 is about this stem cell research. He proposes a compromise where uh, stem cells that are already in uh, scientific laboratories uh, can be used, but no more. In other words, no more using this material from uh, aborted uh, fetuses. So uh, uh, one last issue I'll mention, uh, a domestic airline passenger's bill of rights was also a major issue during the summer of 2001. Uh, lost luggage, people getting bounced off of flights. Um, kind of ironic when you think about what's going to happen on 9-11. But absolutely right, Jeff, complete focus on the domestic sphere, uh, very little discussion of foreign policy, other than when the Chinese forced down an American spy plane off the coast of China, but that potential um, point of conflict was resolved through negotiations. 
then 9-11 happens. And you have a domestic policy president whose experience in foreign affairs is not very significant compared to his domestic affairs uh, experience, obviously, as governor of Texas. Um, and uh, this guy who has been proclaiming compassionate conservatism is faced with a catastrophic attack on America and becomes effectively a foreign policy president. Yes, Jeff. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, one of the one of the main themes of Bush's campaign in 2000 was that the United States was overextended abroad. The United States uh, needed to be more humble in terms of its foreign policy abroad. The United States need to stop engaging in nation building. Uh, you know, he, he and many Republicans talked about how American foreign policy had become a tool of social work. That was going to stop. We, as you mentioned, we're going to focus on the domestic front. And that all comes to an end on 9-11. Uh, I think a lot of folks forget about this prior Bush foreign policy. And I'm mentioning that because 9-11 radicalizes George W. Bush. There's no more talk after 9-11 of a humble American foreign policy. And instead, there's quite a bit of talk, particularly in the second term, about using American power to try to export democracy, uh, to try to make the world safe for democracy and free of terrorism. Look, um, on that day, uh, George W. Bush, like all of us, were, were shot, was shocked uh, by the sights that we all saw on television. He spent the bulk of that day uh, on Air Force One, uh, moving from one secure site to another. And then within 72 hours, he's in downtown New York City, standing with the firemen and rescue workers who were looking for the bodies of the thousands who were uh, buried in, that, in the Twin Towers. Again, Bush is radicalized by that event. This is somebody, this is an important point. George W. Bush is one of those politicians who I think actually did enjoy meeting people. They don't all, not all of them do. Right, right. When he meets with, he spent two to three hours meeting with the families of lost uh, firemen, rescue workers, you know, emergency attendants, etc. Uh, prior to that famous bullhorn speech, meets them individually, one on one, you know, consoling them for hours. He never forgets this experience. And to give you just a bit of evidence for that. For the remainder of his presidency, he will carry in his uh, coat pocket, suit coat pocket, the badge of a New York uh, Metropolitan Transit Authority police officer who was killed in 9-11. The badge was given to him by this officer's mother. And she pleaded with the president on that day uh, to do everything he could to make sure something like this never happened again. Bush literally kept that badge in his pocket, and I would say devotes the remainder of his seven plus years in office to making sure that 9-11 or something worse never happens again. How does it radicalize him in foreign policy? What is, what is his response? Uh, again, a lot of our listeners, of course, live through those days, but a number of our listeners probably didn't or don't know all the aspects of the Bush administration's response to the attacks from Afghanistan. 
you just mentioned it radicalizes him. Yeah. What is his response? What are the debates in the Bush administration over how to respond? And ultimately, what does George Bush decide to do? I think it radicalizes him, Jeff, in that on September 12th, one of his first meetings the next day in the Oval Office. By the way, the night before, on the night of September 11th, the Secret Service woke up George and Laura Bush and told them they had to head for the secure bunker because there was another plane on its way towards Washington. Turned out to be a false alarm, but this is the atmosphere of the time that your listeners, I think, need to be aware of. That next morning on the 12th, he's meeting with Attorney General John Ashcroft and with the FBI director, uh, who, by the way, I believe at this point is Bob Mueller of the Mueller Report, um, and says to them, look, this cannot happen again. Don't let this happen again. And it's from that point on that you begin to see a series of decisions of uh, what some consider to be questionable legality, and uh, certainly in the case of enhanced interrogation techniques or torture, questionable morality, but that's the road to those decisions. Don't let this happen again. Bush was determined to not leave a single stone unturned uh, to, 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 uh, to keep something like this from happening. And, and then I was gonna say, then he comes out not long after this meeting and the attack and these meetings with, with what has become known as the Bush Doctrine. Yes. What's yes. that? Yeah, so the United States under, under the Bush Doctrine is no longer going to wait for an attack to occur to punch back. We are going to preempt, we are going to make sure that those who are engaged, whether it's a nation or a terrorist organization, we will hit them first before they hit us. In other words, we're going over from the defense to the offense. Uh, this is going to be very controversial. Of course, a lot of the uh, great power competition between the United States and Soviet Union, there was sort of an understanding that both sides would act with restraint, uh, that sides, both sides would act to communicate with one another, that this notion of any sort of uh, first strike was considered uh, anathema. Uh, so there's a significant change in America's strategic doctrine. Bush also lays down a marker to the rest of the world. You're either for us or against us. There's not going to be any neutrality, in a sense, permitted by the United States when it comes to harboring terrorists or providing any sort of financial or other support to groups like Al-Qaeda. So it's a, it's a pretty radical change in America's military doctrine, and then it's overall sort of strategic political doctrine. We're going over on to the offense. And of course, on October 7th, 2001, the United States attacks the Taliban government in Afghanistan. Is there unanimity in the administration on this doctrine? Uh, I would say for the most part, Jeff, uh, I'm, I'm sort of scrambling here to recall if there was any significant pushback. There may have been, now that I think of it, probably pushback from the State Department and from some of Colin Powell's people. Um, but I think within the Pentagon with Donald Rumsfeld and certainly with Dick Cheney, um, and of course, George W. Bush himself, no. Uh, there was really this, and, and it's easy for us perhaps to look back and condemn a decision like this, but in the wake of 9-11, which was the deadliest 
attack on American soil in terms of casualties since the Battle of Antietam in September 1862. Now, I'm not talking natural disasters here, but in terms of loss, man-made loss of life. Uh, you have to go back to Antietam to find the kind of numbers. More Americans dead on 9-11 than Pearl Harbor, more Americans dead than on D-Day. The shock of that, I think, led, as I said earlier, Jeff, to this radical transformation in doctrine on Bush's part and a belief that it was time for the United States to go over onto the offense. I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashburn. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America. Now I'm challenging you to do the same. Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org support. That belief, of course, carries through 2001, 2002, and into 2003, and the uh, impending invasion of Iraq. In the Bush administration's mind, which of course turns out to be a really pivotal, pivotal moment, not just for the Bush administration, but also for America, and still in some ways reverberates uh, till today. What is the thinking of the Bush administration on Iraq? So the thinking is that, um, well, first off, people like Paul Wolfowitz, who was the Deputy Secretary of Defense, within days of 9-11, are arguing that the United States needs to hit, needs to attack Iraq. Um, Bush does not accept that advice initially. He keeps his eye on Afghanistan and on the Taliban, who are sheltering al-Qaeda. Uh, but Wolfowitz and a few others are immediately pressing for some type of action against Saddam. Over the course of 2002, when the uh, uh, invasion of Afghanistan comes off uh, so well, uh, you know, by Christmas of 2001, the Taliban are in complete retreat and uh, Osama bin Laden is hiding in the mountains on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. So, you know, it was assumed in a sense that Afghanistan had been won. And now George W. Bush, I think, still determined to keep the ball rolling in a sense, to, to again, stay on the offense uh, and to, as some of the folks in the Bush administration put it, to drain the swamp, the swamp being those states that harbored or encouraged terrorism leads to a kind of consensus, at least in Bush's mind and in some of the folks around him that Saddam has to go. Now, certainly there is pushback on this idea, particularly from the State Department and Colin Powell. The, the invasion of Iraq, what in the end, in your opinion, what um, decides that for Bush? Why does he decide in the end to uh, perhaps go against the advice or, uh, or some of the considerations offered by people in the State Department and launch the invasion? Yeah, I think 
The interesting thing about George W. Bush, and it sets him apart from his father, is uh, once he settled on a course of action, he tended to stay with it uh, for better or for worse. And again, from 9-11 to March of 03, when the United States invades Iraq, Bush is determined to change the face of the Middle East, arguably to change the face of the globe, and again, to do away with the so-called axis of evil, Iraq, Iran, North Korea, and Iraq is going to be a test case. Can we make the world safe for democracy and free of terrorism? There is a kind of Wilsonian streak in George W. Bush. There's no question. In fact, I was just going to say, making the world safe for democracy is a phrase from, from Woodrow Wilson. Absolutely. And uh, this is a stubborn guy. Once he sets himself on a course of action, he sticks with it. It was an incredible gamble. Uh, had it paid off, had Iraq paid off in the sense that the government fell fairly quickly and there wasn't years of, of resistance and IEDs and thousands of Iraqi and American casualties. You know, Bush would probably be looked at as an incredible president who took this remarkable gamble and sent shockwaves through the Middle East. Look, in the, in the immediate weeks after the invasion of Iraq, the government of Iran actually sent out feelers to the United States where they sort of dangled possible concessions about their budding nuclear program. In Lebanon and in Syria, the, the pro-Syrian government in Lebanon and the Syrian government began sending out feelers towards the United States to try to come to a better relationship with the US. And the government of Qaddafi in Libya did the exact same thing. Qaddafi agreed to abandon his nuclear weapons program. So there was a brief window when Bush's strategic vision of draining the swamp seemed perhaps to be paying dividends. All of that, of course, is gonna be lost in a protracted, occupation, an insurgency, a war of uh, attrition in which uh, the United States is beginning to take some sizable casualties and the situation in Iraq becomes remarkably unstable. In the midst of the Iraq war, of course, George Bush decides that he's going to run for a second term. Talk a little bit about for our listeners the campaign of 2004, which we, again, because of the war in Iraq and the ongoing war on terror, we sometimes forget, well, there was in fact a presidential election in 2004. It was hotly contested as American presidential elections are. Talk about the campaign in 2004 and George Bush's decision to run again. Yeah, so Bush's uh, decision to run again, I don't think there was ever any doubt that he would attempt to run again, in part because he had lost the popular vote to Al Gore in 2000 by, by a considerable margin. Uh, and there's always, I think, a desire on the part of any president who has that experience to actually win the popular vote. That's a factor, perhaps not a major one, but it's there. Uh, his opponent that year is John Kerry, the senator from Massachusetts. Uh, Kerry voted in support of the Iraq war. Uh, one of the uh, problems for the Democratic Party is a lot of their leading lights had voted for the authorization for the use of military force, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And Kerry was one of those. So of course, uh, and Kerry had, there's an infamous quote from that campaign 
where Kerry said something to the effect I was opposed to the war before I was for it, or something like that, where he appeared to be kind of flip-flopping, for lack of a better term. And of course, the Bush campaign pounces on that. So foreign policy, terrorism, who is going to be tougher on that issue, I think is the dominant issue in 2004. I'll just add one other thing, Jeff, that helped push George W. Bush over the top in 2004, and that was the state of Ohio. And there was some type of uh, gay, I think gay marriage or gay, referendum question, you probably, go ahead. Jeff. It was, I think it was a state uh, question whether or not to amend the state constitution to prohibit same-sex marriage. Thank you. Um, that turns out, of course, to be a critical issue in Ohio in that year. Uh, the Bush, uh, President Bush, uh, uh, took a pretty strong stance on that issue. The Republican Party um, made that an issue, and it certainly played to Bush's advantage over Senator Kerry in the state of Ohio, which as usual was a very key state in that election. So Bush wins the popular vote fairly comfortably. Uh, it's still, you know, not a landslide by any stretch, but it really in some ways came down to Ohio. Then the second term, obviously the war in Iraq continues and it becomes more and more protracted, deadly uh, and difficult for the United States. At the same time, though, we have uh, domestic policy uh, issues reemerge. Uh, thinking about Bush's uh, second inaugural speech, where he devotes a lot to um, expanding on the Bush doctrine and talking about the need to end tyranny in the world, but also, uh, which is, of course, a vast and amazing uh, uh, scope for ambition, but also talking about domestic policy and things like uh, considering reforms, significant reforms of programs like Social Security. Talk about the, the second term of George W. Bush, both on the foreign policy side, but then again, the domestic policy side. So again, yeah, Jeff, on, on foreign policy, um, an unlimited sort of boundless Wilsonian notion uh, that the United States is going to um, export democracy, change the face of the globe. He takes a shot at folks who say that perhaps certain parts of the world aren't interested in sharing or being part of this experiment in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that somehow principles of self-government are never going to take hold in places like the Middle East. Bush disputes that and says that this is an innate part of human nature, whether you're born in you know, Iraq or Pittsburgh. Um, so a remarkable speech in that sense, um, and one that, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think is going to come back and bite him in the end. Uh, on the domestic front, as you mentioned, the president talks quite a bit, both in his campaign for re-election in 84 and in the, uh, 84, jeez, I've got Ronald Reagan on the mind, apparently, uh, 2004, about privatizing elements of Social Security and Medicare and allowing uh, American workers to put a portion of their social security tax into some type of private investment. Um, and he's arguing that with the increase in the size of the elderly population in the United States, social security is going to default uh, before we know it with this rush of baby boomers of people like myself. 
that something needs to change. We need to raise the uh, retirement age or things that we can do to pull Social Security out of the 1930s and move it into the 21st century. Interestingly enough, even though Bush campaigns on this, uh, his own party in Congress is going to turn against him on this issue. There's a famous expression that Social Security is the third rail of American politics. Don't touch it. Well, the Bush experience in 04, 05, 06 would seem to confirm that. As Bush writes about in his own memoir, he could not convince his own party members in Congress to go along with this partial privatization of Social Security, which was going to be the hallmark, domestic hallmark of his second term. And then, of course, we have um, uh, other domestic catastrophes like Hurricane Katrina. Talk about the importance of that uh, kind of cataclysmic natural event on the Bush presidency. Yeah, it was it was cataclysmic on so many fronts. Um, one thing that George W. Bush had going for him into the summer of 2005, the Katrina is late August 05, um, is this notion that this was an administration that was ready to handle crises, that could step up to the plate and manage threats to American security, whether they were man-made or made by nature. And Katrina just devastates that, uh, fair or not. Um, that hurricane, of course, hits one of the most exposed cities in the United States. Part of that city, I believe, is, is literally under sea level. Um, you have a political situation in Louisiana. Both the mayor of New, of New Orleans and the governor of that state were not fond of one another. They tended not to be cooperating with each other. That didn't help. But in the end, as George W. Bush will admit in his own memoirs, he blew it. Um, he was on vacation in Crawford, Texas when Katrina hit. Uh, his administration was uh, late in sort of getting up to speed on re in responding to it. He cuts his vacation short, has Air Force One fly over New Orleans. The pilot dips his wings so George W. Bush can take a look at the flooding. And the White House photographer snaps pictures of this. And that photo perhaps does more damage than any other to make it seem as if George W. Bush up in the heavens there on Air Force One is detached from the reality on the ground. And from that point on, it's a matter of playing catch up in terms of getting federal resources and appearing to really care about the status of these people trapped in the Superdome and trapped on their roofs. There's, there are plenty of fingers of blame that we can point. I've already mentioned a few. Uh, but George W. Bush, I would say to his credit, in the end, says that the responsibility lies with him. And I think that's accurate. And I think, uh, Jeff, from that point on, it's all downhill for the Bush presidency. For the rest of 2005, 2006, 2007, there are, of course, some other um, presidential powers in the Constitution, uh, for example, nominating Supreme Court justices. And for yes. the first time in a while, we have significant vacancies on the Supreme Court. Talk a little bit about um, Bush's appointments to the federal judiciary, in particular the Supreme Court in his second term. Of course, this was a, a judicial appointments was a major, is a major priority for any presidency. And uh, with the decision of uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist to step down, uh, Bush appoints Justice John Roberts. Uh, to take that seat as Chief Justice. 
um, and then has a second nomination of Samuel Alito. But in the interim, between the initial Roberts appointment uh, and the appointment of Justice Alito, um, President Bush nominates his White House counsel, Harriet Myers, uh, an old Texas uh, ally and personal lawyer to George W. Bush from Texas. Um, both the Republican Party in Congress, for the most part, uh, all of them, and obviously the Democrats who are looking to block uh, a Bush appointment, uh, object to the Myers appointment. Democrats believing she's too close to President Bush, uh, she'll uphold his controversial Patriot Act and anti-terrorism initiatives. So that's a Democratic Party talking point. But for conservatives, there's a sense that Harriet Myers lacks um, a commitment to principle, uh, that she's never really uh, talked in any, at, 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 to any great length about some of those bedrock constitutional principles that were so important to groups like the Federalist Society. She's seen as more of a Bush personal attorney. And the implication is perhaps that she's not qualified for such an important post. In the end, Bush withdraws the Myers nomination, uh, nominates Samuel Alito, who I believe is a law professor at Princeton at this time, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and much more, Alito, of course, was much more acceptable to groups like the Federalist Society and other conservative uh, judicial watch type organizations. Right. So again, uh, one might say a stumble a misstep yes. there. Yes. Um, and as Katrina has hurt him, the Myers nomination has hurt him. Uh, as you, you mentioned, it's sort of, uh, at least in public opinion ratings, sort of downhill uh, from the re-election in 2004 to the time that Bush leaves the presidency in 2008. What moment in those last years of the Bush presidency stands out to you? Well, I would say the Republican Party gets slaughtered in the off-year elections of 2006. Uh, and one of the things that stands out for me, Jeff, is the next day, George W. Bush asks for Donald Rumsfeld's resignation. It's possible, possible, had he asked for that prior to the 2006 election and indicated there might be some change in act, course of action in Iraq, maybe, maybe, uh, some of the political damage of 06 could have been avoided, but that's not George W. Bush. Again, this is a guy who was persistent. Some would say stubborn. He stuck by a lot of his team. Well, perhaps their expiration date. Uh, and I think perhaps, you know, Don Rumsfeld might be an example of that. Um, so this, this is a man. And the other thing that jumps out for me, Jeff, in those final years, he is being, President Bush is being told by people like James Baker, I would say probably by his own father, George H.W. Bush, certainly by Washington, uh, you know, gray eminence greases like Brent Scowcroft to get out of Iraq, cut your losses in Iraq. He does not do that. In fact, he rejects that advice and he asks for, or doesn't ask for, he orders a surge in American forces into Iraq. Again, this is a stubborn, determined, persistent president. That Iraq surge that he approves in 07, 08 um, is done in the face of overwhelming opposition, including from his own party, and perhaps even from his own family. 
He does it. There's some evidence, at least in the short run, that it succeeded. It staunched the bleeding in Iraq. It certainly put an end, at least for a time, to what was known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, it's an interesting thing to sort of engage in speculation. Had that policy continued into the next administration, could perhaps the United States have hung on in Iraq? Look, I grant you that's a minority view, the one I just gave. Uh, but I think there's evidence that by 2009, uh, the situation in Iraq had stabilized. And perhaps if the United States had retained a larger commitment there, we could have avoided the rise of organizations like ISIS, perhaps. Well, you, you, the, the George Bush you're talking about in both of these terms and through his administration, um, you're saying that he was decisive. He was, in some respects, resolute or even stubborn in persisting, very much wanted to be and took charge. Um, yes. He was the decider, Jeff. Uh, the decider. In fact, I think his memoir is called Decision Points, right? That's correct. Yeah. So the idea of decision and him making the decision and sticking by it is central to understanding his understanding of his own presidency. But, but then you know that there are many people who are out there who argue that, in fact, George W. Bush's vice president, Dick Cheney, essentially ran the White House. There have been movies all about this. <laughs> There's been a lot of journalism, journalism on this subject and a lot of popular sort of Washington rumors about this. What's your take on the idea that, in fact, Dick Cheney was really the power in the, in the Bush presidency? I think at best that is vastly overstated. Uh, it borders on... Uh, kind of crazy conspiracy mongering that seems to be all the rage these days. There's no question that Vice President Cheney was a powerful vice president. There's no question that George W. Bush relied on him as a Washington insider, but did, George, uh, did Dick Cheney run that presidency? Absolutely not. In the first term, Cheney and Rumsfeld uh, certainly had President Bush's ear, uh, less so in the second term. But even in the first term, the notion that Dick Cheney was running this White House, I think, is complete fiction. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving uh, or doing some interviews for the George W. Bush Oral History Project, which is run out of the Miller Center in, at UVA. And to a person, every Bush appointee that we talk to says that that is fiction. Uh, they, don't, they don't deny I mean, Cheney had influence but he was not calling the shots. And just to give you one example of where George W. Bush refused to go, well, I'll give, I'll give you plenty, I'll give you two. Cheney was pushing for some type of military response to Iran in the second term, in terms of their nuclear program, and the president rejected that advice. More personally, Cheney pleaded for Bush to pardon Scooter Libby, his former chief of staff, who'd gotten tangled up in one of these Washington scandals that a lot of folks don't even remember anymore and was uh, convicted of perjury. Bush refused, again, for better or for worse, Bush refused to pardon Scooter Libby. He did commute the, his sentence, but Cheney really was angry at Bush for not pardoning his former chief of staff and Bush did what he wanted to do. So this is vastly overstated. We're into sort of Oliver Stone territory here when we start talking about Cheney being the puppet master of the Bush administration. Mm. 
in your book, Rush to Judgment, you make the argument that historians and the media have been too quick to denounce Bush's presidency. And it does seem like there has been something of a rehabilitation of his reputation. I think just the, you know, these usual um, presidential rankings. In 2009, he's ranked 38th. Uh, he's ranked 33rd in 2017. And lately in 2021, he's ranked 29th best president. Um, you don't necessarily give him the highest marks in your book, but you do say that he's been unfairly judged. And there does seem to be some vindication of that in a rehabilitation of his reputation. What do you think accounts for that? I think the biggest thing of all, Jeff, is the presidency of Donald Trump and the fact that on occasion, George W. Bush has spoken out against uh, some of President Trump's uh, comments or actions. That's part of it. Um, George W. Bush, uh, I would urge your listeners to take a quick look at his first inaugural address, which is filled with references to civility to decency, to the importance of peaceful transfers of power and how those lie at the bedrock of Republican government. Um, George W. Bush um, is never, never going to be considered a great president. I don't think he'll ever rise in those polls, which by the way, those polls are of questionable validity, although I'm always thrilled to participate, but he will never rise beyond that middle tier. You cannot have one, perhaps two, unsuccessful wars on your watch and a serious economic collapse in 2008 and ever be considered a great president. Whether you, you know, you could acknowledge all sorts of circumstances beyond George W. Bush's control. The fact is those things happen on his watch and they're going to keep him, I think, permanently at best in the sort of average rank of presidents. But there's some rehabilitation that you alluded to, again, I think goes back to the experience that the nation went through uh, during the Trump presidency, the idea that George W. Bush never, for the most part, certainly directly engaged in the politics of personal destruction. He did attempt both as governor and as president, I would argue, to reach out to the other side and I think that sets him apart uh, from one of our more recent presidents, and that accounts for his rise in these presidential rankings. Finally, in your study of George W. Bush and his presidency, and maybe this is not a fair question, but what most surprised you about Bush and his presidency? I think I too perhaps had bought into long, you know, before, before I'd written the book. The book's been out now for 10 years. I had bought into the idea that uh, Cheney, Dick Cheney exerted uh, perhaps an unhealthy level of influence. The more I dug into it, the more I was involved in these oral history interviews, the less I found that to be the case. That would be one, one of these uh, uh, myths of sort that the writing the book helped me to sort of get beyond. The other thing I would add is, and I know that this is uh, difficult, particularly for my Democratic Party friends and for folks on the liberal side of the political equation. I, I actually think this is a decent human being. Uh, many of them still don't. 
they point to the torture stuff and you know look i get that that's a uh i understand the the um problem that people have folks have with that i get it it's a reasonable argument to make but i actually think that this was one of the more decent individuals to to hold that office of president to inhabit the the oval office there's a there is a core decency there that the more i dug into this guy the more i heard from people including a few democrats who actually knew him well the more i realized that that was very much part of of who this person was a kind of inherent decency um and uh, hopefully as time goes on more and more people will begin to recognize that well thank you steve for getting giving us a glimpse into the the complex um but uh decisive the important uh, presidency of George W. Bush. Thank you for these insights. Thank you for challenging our own thinking on these things and encouraging us to, to dig deeper into this very important American president. Steve Knox, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash American Idea Pod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AM Idea Podcast. From the SRAM Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sikitka.